0: All right, so who besides Pat and Bruce can tell me what psalm that was? Psalm 73, very good. And Pat, I assume that's an original? Yeah, that's awesome. Wonderful, we need good psalms like that. Redone, that was excellent, thank you. I'm turning to Psalm 73 now instead of Psalm 10. (laughs) Let me pray for us again and we'll consider God's word. Father, we ask now that you would take this passage of scripture and that it would bring encouragement and conviction, that Lord, the pain that many of us feel of injustice, mistreatment, hurt, I pray that this psalm would be a balm and a comfort. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Kenny Stahl was pitching, and I was in the fourth grade. And he was left-handed, and so was I. And he cranked back on that fastball, and it hit me right in the back of the hip. Or as Forrest Gump would say, in the buttocks. (laughs) And I did what a normal fourth grader would do. I cried my head off. And part of the reason that I was crying, I remember yelling to the coach, he's not supposed to hit me, it's not fair. And it was one of those first moments in my life that I knew that I wasn't in Eden. I was east of Eden. I was no longer in Kansas. There was paradise lost. And I wonder for you this morning, What are some of those early moments in your life when you realize you had this existential moment of reality where it dawns on you, I didn't deserve this, I didn't ask for it, it wasn't fair, and ouch, it hurts really bad. When did you discover and you felt like Linda Ronstadt who sang an Everly Brothers song, I've been cheated, I've been mistreated, when will I be loved? I've been put down, I've been pushed around, when will I be loved? The heart cries when we've been hurt and we're very much tempted to think that God doesn't love us or care for us when injustice acutely happens to us. When will I be loved? Statistics tell us that one in four girls before the age of 18 are sexually abused. And for boys, it's one in six. When the big wave comes, the big waves of injustice, the big wave of evil, buried victims, starved children, big waves of pain, terrible stuff of betrayal, adultery, assault, battery, mugged, hit-and-run accident, no insurance, insurance refuses to pay, forgery, domestic violence, sexual abuse, rape, murder, drunk driver crashes into a family member, malpractice from a doctor you trusted, your credit card skimmed, your identity stolen, revealing pictures of your child forwarded around the school or posted online, elderly parents scammed out of their money, widows taken advantage of with home repairs and car repairs, teachers bullying students with intentional lower grades, schools won't release transcripts, military brass refuses to promote you, brass throws you under the bus as the scapegoat. What do you do when the big wave comes and hits you? Because it hits all of us. And you know what happens to a lot of Christians? They stop going to church and they just quit. And they just say, I can't handle it. When will I be loved? Where were you, God? And if you don't have a Psalm 10 in your theological bank to draw upon, if your Christianity is all milquetoast, mountaintop experiences, fuzzy wuzzies, if there's not a bedrock foundation of Scripture that deals with the wicked, that deals with evil and the real, heavy, dark pains of life, when the big hard times come and that big wave comes, you're never going to want to go out to the ocean again. You'll be afraid of the waves and the dangerous surf. And so we need Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are there's no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of sight, and as for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed. Sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God is forgotten. He's hidden his face. He'll never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself, for you have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike, strike terror no more. This is the Word of God. Now, if you have an outline in the bulletin, I want to follow these four points. Excuse me. The wailing prayer against injustice, verse 1. The wicked praying upon the weak, verses 2 to 11. The waiting in prayer, verses 12 to 15. And then the wrath of God's power, verses 16 to 18. Let's consider this psalm. Verse 1, the wailing prayer against injustice. The psalm begins, why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The psalmist takes his complaint to the right place, to the Lord. And he's crying out, do you hide yourself? Warren Wearsby's outline of this psalm is actually, does God hide, does God hear, and does God help? Does God hide, verses 1 to 4? Does God hear, verses 5 to 13? And does God help? And a lot of times we're crying out those very things. We live in a day and age where a lot of things are hidden. A lot is hidden and kept from public view. The poor are hidden really well in Montgomery County. If there's a suicide or a jumper at Asbury, it doesn't get reported. You'll never hear about it. Corner doesn't come and the body isn't removed until it's dark. Public doesn't want to see the dead. An open casket funeral is almost never heard of anymore, much less a casket at all. One of the sobering realities at both Sheldon Locust's funeral and then also Solomon Bass's funeral, Lenny's dad, was everybody got in line with a shovel and you actually scooped dirt onto the top of the grave, top of the casket. And it was such a fresh reminder, like when you do that, like, this is going to be me soon enough. To dust I shall return. And it was a sobering reality that makes you face mortality. We live in a day where so much is covered up. Magazines are now starting to reverse the trend, and they're saying they're no longer going to airbrush these images they're no longer gonna Photoshop these women and and move out every blemish possible and intentionally make them skinnier than they really are. Because what they are realizing is that they're crushing women and that women are starving themselves and they realize they can never match these images of these magazines. And the point of this Psalm is that it screams reality. It's not edited. And there are other ones that are much harder than this. Psalm 109, Psalm 137, read those. And a lot of times we drop out the hard parts of the Bible and we're like Thomas Jefferson with his own Bible where anything he didn't like, he just removed it from the Bible. And a lot of times we do that as well. We don't use many imprecatory psalms in our worship service. There's a true story about uh, John Gershner who was R.C. Sproul's hero and he was in worship and the choir got up and sang Psalm 95 and the first you know, six, first five verses are really nice verses in Psalm 95 about us being sheep and of his pasture and he's the Lord. But then the, the whole last part is a call about today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts and how the people long ago, you know, didn't, didn't listen and God basically passed over that generation. And so he got up to preach and he just started his sermon with, well, I know we'll hear the next part of the Psalm next Sunday. And he called out the choir for <laughs> basically, how, where's the rest of the psalm, you know? And, and that's the way we kind of live life is <clears throat> we edit out the hard parts. And Derek Kidner says about these psalms, he says it's a function of the psalms. He says it's about Psalm t- 10. To touch the nerve of the problem <clears throat> and to keep its pain alive against the comfort of the familiarity or indeed complicity with a corrupt world because that's the world <clears throat> excuse me that you and I live in my neighbor down the street from me he got hurt on the job over 5 months ago and he still has not been paid he's a car mechanic and he's just pulling a car out of the out of the loop and there's many many bays and one of the escorts was bringing a car down and apparently he was texting and it gets in a head on collision and He has to have surgery on his neck. And so he is the breadwinner of his family. He's the only one working. And he's gone in the hole probably at least 20 grand. Thankfully, he has a good credit card that's very low interest. But he's waiting for vindication. And I told him when he went to court that I was praying for God's provision, God's protection, and God's justice. And he really appreciated that. And he told me that when he was in court, the lawyer was cross-examining him, intentionally switching the dates, trying to trip him up so that he would give false uh, information and ask him to verify if this is true. Is it true that this was a pre-existing injury? And that, you know, and he would say, you went to the doctor on such and such date and was giving false dates to try to trip him up. And then he has, and we, we recently, just last weekend, we caught two of the secret uh, people that come out and they monitor him. They take videos or pictures and they're trying to catch him. And, and one day he backed his truck up and he reached up and swiped and cleaned out his gutters. And so they asked him on the court stand, did you clean out your gutters? And he said, yes, well, it's a good thing because they had a video of it, you know, and, and they got a video of him bringing in the groceries one day from Weiss, so they were out at the grocery store. So the, the insurance company does not want to pay that's the world we live in, and this poor guy's waited five months. If he didn't have a good credit card, and he didn't have resolve, to to he would give in. And if he gave in and went back to work, well, then they don't have to pay. It's a tough world we live in. David Pallison, in his book Seeing with New Eyes, he has a chapter on this very psalm that is very helpful. It's called Predator, Prey, and Protector, and Prey is P-R-E-Y. The wicked are the predators, and notice how they're described as a lion. They're described as a wild animal, and we're described as the zebra. <laughs> and, and, and the lion is in the thicket, and it's in it's an ambush, and it's secretly, stealthily looking of who it may devour and kill. And so you have this predator, and then you have prey, and then you have God as our protector. And he says there's four voices in this psalm. I think this is helpful. He says, the first voice of the psalm is the psalmist himself who's personally wrestling with wicked men and injustice. And it's very real to the psalmist. This is David. And there's no title, but a lot of people uh, in the Septuagint, Psalm 9 and 10 are one psalm. And so Psalm 9 is a title to David. Psalm 10, we think, is a continuation of that psalm. And so the first voice is David crying out in the midst of his injustice. Wicked men. The second voice is the voice of the church throughout the centuries, even before Christ and after Christ, of the experiences of suffering and justice and evil at the hand of wicked men and, and, and crying out and praying, Psalm 10. The third voice is the voice of Christ himself. He prayed and sang the Psalms. They were his hymn book. And so we know that Jesus sang because it's recorded for us, so he must have sung and prayed Psalm 10. He was the man of sorrows, he's the one of acquainted with grief. He was the victim, he experienced the worst justice ever afflicted without any stain of death or sin and yet condemned to death. And the first, the fourth voice is our voice. We too pick up the psalm and we pray it back to God in the midst of our troubles, of our pain. We need these deeper harder psalms, so that when the hard waves come and hit us, that we, how do we counter that? A lot of people don't know what to do with their anger, and a lot of people are struggling with anger these days. This gives us a vent for our anger, and we too join in the chorus, and we begin with, why, O oh Lord, do you stand off? Why do you hide yourself in times of, of, of trouble? And the heart cry is, where were you, God? And it's an expression of, of disappointments and often our timing is not God's timing and we have to wait upon the Lord and we love the story of Esther because so quickly the justice came and we can we laugh at the story because we're waiting waiting but we know what's coming once we've read the story well we have read the story and we've read Revelation and we know what's coming And we are going to join the chorus. We are going to sing with Jesus. When God comes down and he shows up and he punishes the wicked, the righteous rejoice and they sing and they celebrate that finally vindication has come. Martin Luther says about Psalm 10, he says, there's not in my judgment a psalm which describes the mind, the manners, the works, the words, the feelings, and the fate of the ungodly, with so much propriety, fullness, and light is this psalm. Because here in verses 2 to 11, we see the wicked preying upon the weak. And we see thoughts, words, and actions. We see the thoughts of the wicked. In verse 4, we're told, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts... Or there's no God. He is a practical atheist and he's living out his worldview. His thought is there's no God. And because there's no God, how does it affect his words? Well, his words are, look at everything that he says in this psalm. He says in his heart, verse six, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He'll never see it. Why does the reniquid... Wicked, renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account. You see, this is an arrogant man, but he's being allowed to follow through on his wicked schemes. And the psalmist is making clear that these people, these practical atheists, they're insulting God and they're injuring man. And what really aggravates the psalmist are the words that I just read. It's the repeated boast that God won't do anything. With pride, there's no God. And he's saying, I won't meet adversity. I shall not be moved. Basically, God can't stop me. I'm unstoppable. It's a triple blasphemy. God is forgotten. He's hidden his face. He'll never see it. That is a triple blasphemy. And then in verse 13, God will not call to account. God is powerless and unjust in what he's saying. It's like Christopher Hitchens' book, God is not great. Man, I read down thinking, you're making money to publish that. You're in big trouble. And Freud said, when I get to heaven, I'm going to find more wrong with God than he with me. I think Freud is seriously mistaken. So we have words, thoughts, but then actions. And in actions, verse 2, The wicked are hotly pursuing the poor. Verse eight, he sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net and the helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. They are the predators and we are the prey. The wicked are the lions and we are the sheep. And notice how the weak are portrayed in these verses. They're called the poor in verse 2 and twice in verse 9. And so the poor are often, you know, here's the reality. At some point, every one of us will be weak. You may think, well, I don't, I'm do not not, this isn't me now. At some point, we will be weak. For some, it's the poor. Others, he, he describes the innocent in verse 8. They didn't do anything wrong. He talks about how the wicked come after the helpless, verse 8, verse 10, and verse 14, three times. They're called the afflicted in verse 12 and verse 16. They're called the oppressed in verse 17. And they're called the fatherless in verse 14 and 18. They're the weak. And the wicked go after the weak. And just as in our world, we call it predatory loans. The system is built to help the rich. But if you get behind, woe to you. Because now... You're on the underside, and the current's go in the wrong direction. And so the psalmist doesn't sugarcoat these issues. He doesn't paint it as easy, simple, or blissful. There's no, naive, no, no naiveness going on here. And so when we're going through stuff in our life, and you think nobody understands what I'm going through. Nobody understands this painful thing that's happening. The psalmist understands. God understands. The psalms are written for us to cry these things back out to God when evil, or, evil people are prospering in their evil ways. Even as Pat just sang about, you know, he almost stumbled in, this, in Psalm 73 until he went to the sanctuary of God and he saw their end once he realized. He was stumbling until he realized they're gonna stumble for all eternity. And he knew he had God. How do you deal with your anger? You know, Tim Keller has this classic, you know, Tim Keller style. He always gives out two false tendencies and usually one's the liberal and one's the conservative. And he says neither one of those is to be the Christian and that's typical Keller. So here he goes. You got two false tendencies in dealing with anger from the liberal and conservative mindset that are both wrong. The liberal mindset is they see injustice, they see people mistreating others, and they say, let's not get angry because, you know, it all depends on your perspective. Maybe from this perspective, it looks like that's something evil and just, but from another perspective, it might not be. And so maybe you're the aggressors in this perspective. So the liberal temperament tries to deal with anger by basically saying, well, there's evil out there, but it isn't all that bad because it's really not evil. And then the conservative mindset goes like this. The conservative personality says, I'm going to heaven because I'm virtuous. I'm being blessed by God because I'm a good person. And virtuous people don't get angry, so I'm not angry. I'm fine. I'm okay. In other words, almost no matter who you are in the modern world, either by denying the degree of evil or injustice out there or by denying the degree of evil and justice in, in your own heart, we all end up saying, I'm not angry. And yet we're angry. (laughs) <laughs> but the ancient people are willing to, to admit it. They're able to say there's injustice out there, there's bad things that have happened. I'm out of touch with reality if I don't admit that I'm angry, and now I need to own up to my angry. And the Bible gives us a way to deal with our anger. And if you ever if you don't find yourself ever getting angry, it's because you're out of touch with the reality. Keller says, "With the integrity that God's creation is always under attack, community, which is God, what God wants, is always turning into fragmentation, and peace, which is what God wants, is constantly being turned into conflict, and life is being turned into death, and health is being turned into injury. There are lots of problems out there, lots of problems everywhere. And so, whenever you see something good under attack, if you don't get angry, you're not like God. Who's the angriest person in the Bible?" God. Anger is always an expression of love. The question is, what are you loving? And a lot of times it's my own personal agenda peace and quiet. <laughs> Do we love the good? You see, the Bible here is giving us a way to work through our anger. And so the waiting and prayer is verses 12 to 15. And let's see how the psalmist deals with it. He cries out to God, Arise, O God! Lift up your hand. What is he to lift up his hand for? Well, follow the imagery. Lift up your hand and break the arm of the evildoer. Arise, lift up your hand, and bring the hammer down on the evildoer. It's okay to pray that. We should not be praying for personal vengeance, but we should be praying out for justice and asking God to bring justice. God cares for the helpless. He cares for the fatherless. And his very covenant promise is, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you to Abraham. And ultimately that applies to Christ. And so we should be praying for God to bring the wickedness of the wicked to account. That's not taking personal revenge. It's asking for his name to be hallowed in this world, to be honored. And when we're praying for his kingdom to come, we're praying for the repentance and salvation of those who do evil to you. And we're praying for God's will to be done in our lives, and the lives of those who've hurt you. And so we should be praying that way. You know, recently, if you saw the Washington Post article from January 29th, they had four clergy blessing Leroy Carhartt's new late-term abortion facility in Bethesda. And this is what the lady said that came out, one of the ladies that came to pray. She started her prayer with, God of grace and God of glory in whom we move and live. Well, that's a pretty good acknowledgement. As she opened her prayer, and then she prayed, that uh, and may they always know that all that they do is for your glory. And she led a prayer, and um, and then she went. They went around and they sprinkled water in each room of the clinic, gave their blessing uh, over the business, and it says we give honor to all of these women to choose who choose to come to this uh, space, and we sanctify this place, this space, and we honor it as holy. Okay? This is the same place where Leroy Carhart is yanking out limb by limb off the bodies of human beings in the second and third trimester. And you're saying that, that in him we live and move and have our, in him we, her quote, in him we move and live. And yet these people are snuffing out that very life and you're praying that they're doing their will. We have a term for that. It's called False prophets and there's lots of them in the Bible. They say peace, peace, when there is no peace. Isaiah 5, 20 and so on says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. So when something is contrary to the word, yes, we're grieved by that. But we should not be surprised False prophets are nothing new, and so we pray: break the arm of the evildoer, stop this evil practice. We're praying for God to arise, and as that happens in your life, we pray for justice. You see, Ephesians four twenty six. There's a double imperative: be angry, sin not. We get it from Psalm four four. We only tend to focus on the second imperative. Sin not. Matter of fact, the NIV waters down the translation. It says, In your anger, you know, uh, do not sin. It's a command. Be angry, sin not. We should be angry because we love what God loves and hate what God hates. And so we have to wrestle with those things. But we're not in our anger to go and do something that we're going to regret, we give it to God. And because we wait for his wrath. And look at verses 16 to 18. We have a picture of God's justice and that he is in charge. We are told, verses 16 to 18, The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. You know, Psalm 9 ends with, let the nations know they're but men. Let them know they're just men. Put them in fear of you, O Lord. Augustine's comment on that was the whole humility of man consists in the true knowledge of himself. Let them know they're just men. Gone. Let them know. God is on his throne and he is in charge. And we need to understand that this idea of judgment, which the Psalms talk about, and that in so much of the Psalms get at this idea that God is bringing justice, is that that's actually a necessary part and a good part of the gospel. Christopher Ashe in his, his book on the Psalms says it's necessary because it's the, pre, it's the essential precondition for the new heavens and the new earth to be in a pure and holy place. It's good because it will resound to the glory of God when Babylon, a symbol for the whole anti-God system of the world, falls in Revelation 18 and 19. The people of God do not weep. They sing hallelujahs with great joy. It is this for which they have longed, and they grasp that God is glorified in it. So we take heart that God is king forever and that he will bring about complete justice. There will become a day soon when the meek will inherit the earth, the wicked will be cut off from the land, and all that insult God and bring injury upon man, they will be gone. In the meanwhile, we inwardly groan as we eagerly await, Romans 8 says. And so we pray like the psalmist. Has prayed, And if you look back at Psalm 9, which most think is one psalm, look back at verse 7 of Psalm 9. It says this, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And let me just say as we sing our last song here about the resurrection, that if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then the wicked win. The wicked win and Jesus the light of the world is just snuffed out and darkness and the dark deeds of man expressing their hatred toward God and his Christ. They would have fulfilled Psalm two, they would have been plotting against the Lord and his Messiah screaming out give us Barabbas and they would have won. But when God raised his son from the dead, light has overcome darkness. It was like that trick candle, you know, that you got on your, for birthday and you thought it was out and then it just keeps coming back to life. This is the candle that can never be extinguished. Jesus, who took on God's wrath in his first coming, for all who believe, he came and took the storm. He took all of God's punishment on himself. He's coming back again. And he's he's coming back again, and he's not taking God's wrath this time. He's delivering God's wrath. It's called the wrath of the Lamb. For all who wouldn't believe in his reign and wouldn't have him as their savior and king. You see, there comes a time where where the curtain just comes down, the play's over. The curtain comes down and when and what happens when when the play's over? is everybody takes a bow and this time every knee bow and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2. Whether they want to submit or not, when the play is done and the lights come on, it's over. He returns, everybody bows to King Jesus. So is he your king now? Because you will have to give an account to him. God raised him from the dead. He's the candle that can never be extinguished. He hasn't forgotten all these words of the wicked that they think, oh, it's not going to happen. It happens, just like it happened on Haman like that, and it turned in, in a day. He is returning, and we have to be ready to face the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he came to take your punishment on himself. Have you given him your sin and asked for his righteousness? It's our only hope in life and in death. Let's pray. Lord, you will settle all accounts and all these crooked roads will be made straight and all of these injustices will be fully paid for. And so, Lord, we can give our anger into your hands, knowing that you're the king and you have said it is yours to avenge and to leave room for God's wrath and for us not to take it ourselves. And so we give you our our hurt, our anger, and we thank you that you will make all things right. But we do pray in this age that you would bring our enemies to Christ. We pray for those who persecute us. We ask that you bless them with salvation. And for those who've been personally wounded, we ask that you'd heal them. Hear our prayers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.